thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast. Episode 413, I was always grateful to Mussolini. Last time, the final stage of Operation Pedestal was about to get underway. The merchant ships scattered, but starting to come back together, thanks to Admiral Burroughs' destroyers, were entering the Narrows, where Italian subs and e-boats, what the Western Allies called Italian fast attack craft, were waiting. And as they were based on the German S-boat, they were to be respected and feared. Still, the ships of Pedestal came on. As the various merchant ships and their escorts slowly came together, so too did Admiral Dazzaro's attack fleet, and its number of 17 vessels was worth worrying over. Admiral Dazzara, with two light cruisers and three destroyers, was heading east from Sardinia, making for the Tyrrhenian Sea. Sailing west from Sicily, to meet them were two heavy cruisers and six destroyers. This left the battleship Treste, with her own destroyer and e-boat escort, which had departed northern Italy to also join up. But, being a battleship, the rest of the Italian crews felt better for having her around. The last ship, the cruiser Attendolo, would put this fighting force over the top. What should have been Pedestal's last hours, instead, were overshadowed by intense infighting between the Italians and the Germans. As covered last time, Dazzara and those representing him wanted air cover for his force as it destroyed Pedestal. Their fear was that the Malta-based planes might sink some of them before, during, or after Pedestal was attacked. And Dazara did not want to lose anyone or any ship unnecessarily. And staying on the subject of death from above, Air Marshal Keith Park, now in charge of the air arm on Malta, had already sent up nine sorties that day, which is how they knew of the converging Italian fleet. Problem was, Park only had seven Baltimores, and two Marylands, both light bombers. What he had been asking for, then screaming for, were liberators, American heavy bombers that were infused with British weapons and other specifications. The liberators could carry more bombs, longer, and could be installed with radar, like the Wellington long-range medium bombers, which made the liberator a deadly double threat, which is why Keith Park wanted them, needed them, but now it seemed it was too late. The end game had come. And continuing with the recap, Admiral Riccardi, chief of the Italian fleet, said that Dazzara needed 80 German fighters to keep his fleet safe. But Field Marshal Kesselring, who did not respect the Italian fleet, said, and there were truth in his words, that he did not have enough fighters to lend out. Dazzara was on his own. Even Admiral Eberhard Weichold, the C&C of the German Navy in the Mediterranean, weighed in on the Italian side. After the war, he wrote, The German High Command, as well as the German Naval General Staff, remained deaf to my every effort to have fuel oil shipments increased. That the German General Staff observed all this with indifference proved once again its under-evaluation of naval power in the overall conduct of warfare and in particular of the meaning of the Mediterranean within the general scheme of the whole conflict. But to be fair, the German general staff were probably taking their cues from Hitler. This argument 
It went on all that day of August 13th, and well into the early hours of the 14th, started out in Kesselring's office, but then moved to the Command Suprema war rooms. There, the Italians exerted themselves a bit more. But in the end, it was the naval officers, Vicold and Riccardi, saying yes, but Kesselring and Forgier, the commander of the Regia Aeronautica, saying no. And during the dark early hours of August 14th, the ships of Pedestal continued to be sunk, along with their escorts. Any survivors were to be finished off by Dazara's fleet, provided it could receive air cover. The German naval staff war diary had this entry. The Admiral Weichold feels it will mean missing a big chance of annihilating the largest convoy undertaken so far in the Mediterranean, after the heavy enemy forces, superior in numbers and arms, have withdrawn, this being Admiral Seifert's Force Z. Just before midnight on August 13th, one of Park's Wellingtons, which had radar on board, found Dazara's part of the assembling fleet and tracked it. Also, unfortunately for the Italians, the battleship Trieste had turned for home. Why? To save fuel. At the moment, Dazara was just north of the western half of Sicily, but the Wellington's six-man crew could not follow them forever. So Keith Park had a second Wellington on standby at Luca Airfield, located in central southern Malta. Of course, this bomber crew had no idea of what was going on. They certainly did not know of pedestal, only that they were to hide underground unless called on. But during the day of August 13th, Park let them go to a movie, but told them to be ready to move. They went to the movie and started to relax, but that's when the film stopped and the lights came on. They were told to report back to Luca. When their plane took off, one Dennis Cook, who was the wireless operator, said they had eight 250-pound bombs on board. Once in the air, the crew was told of 12 Italian cruisers and destroyers, and they were to go after them. Hours later, at 3 a.m., August 14th now, Dazara's part of the fleet was on Cook's radar screen. What came next was a series that had happened before and would happen again. The Wellington sent off flares to better see the ships below. The ships below sent up a barrage, but as the gunners could not see the plane, it was left unharmed. And as the next part is all too human, we will use Cook's words. I don't know what our altitude was because I was focused on the wireless. If we were brave, we'd sometimes go in at about a thousand feet, but not often. There were a few RAF heroes who would press home the attack, but they tended to get shot out of the sky. Air crews had a different interpretation of our patriotic duty. We tended to look after our own skins more. We dropped our bombs, scored some near misses, and as far as we were concerned, that was the end. We'd done what we were sent to do. Again, human enough, but so is deception, which can be a good thing when needs must. And for Keith Park, that moment had arrived. As the Wellington was leveling out and heading for home, Cook heard the following over the radio at 3.19 a.m. Report result your attack. Latest enemy position for liberators. Most immediate. This confused Cook and the crew. First, plain language was never 
used, certainly not during a mission. And second, Cook knew there were no liberators on Malta. The ones Park wanted were still in Cairo. So what the hell was going on? Cook told his mates, I think this is a fake. Indeed, it was a fake, and yet an intentional fake. Park might not have had the liberators he wanted, but the Italians didn't know that. So the fake message was sent out about the non-existing heavy bombers. Park, still frustrated, had nothing to lose. And here's what happened next. The navigator, looking at his radar screen as it suddenly began to alter, said, Bloody hell, they're changing course. Now, it would be nice for the Allies to say and think that Keith Park pulling a brilliant stunt was the hero of the hour. Truth was, it was Mussolini. Back to Rome, with Kesselring, Weichold, Cavallero, Forgier, and Riccardi fighting all the livelong day, but getting nowhere, they were forced to seek a higher power, El Duce. C&C Cavallero phoned Mussolini, waking him up, and explained the situation. Basically, without air cover, the ships of Rome would suffer. Besides, word had come of additional enemy warships being seen east of Malta. Between being woken up, the lack of oil for his ships, his disillusionment of Hitler, and lastly, his partner's unwillingness to protect his ships as they went out and fought for them, that was enough for the master of Rome. Il Duce replied, let the Italian bombers and e-boats finish off what was left of pedestal. Thus was Dazzara's warships ordered back to port. Going back to sleep, when Mussolini woke up the next morning, he told a crowd outside his window that he wanted to congratulate the Italian fleet for its success in annihilating the enemy forces, which had dared to venture into the seas of Rome. Was that the truth? Well, it was what Il Duce was told, and that was enough for him. Only later would the Italian leader find out that the army and navy tried to outdo each other in telling their fickle leader what he wanted to hear. But by then, it was much too late. For a touch of reality, we have to return to Admiral Weichold, who said, In this fashion, a splendid opportunity for a crushing victory by the Italian ships was thrown away, even as they were already at sea and heading for the battle area. It was a strategic failure of the First Order on the part of the Axis, the repercussions of which would one day be felt. True enough, but leave it to a Brit, in this case Admiral Burrow, to say the same thing, but with a bit more cheek. I was always grateful to Mussolini. There is no doubt in my mind that had the Italian cruisers arrived that morning, there would have been a massacre. We would have been wiped out. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. 
Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As for the SS cargo ship Santa Elisa, third mate Fred Larson was still at the helm. His mate, Cadet Lonnie Dales, was still at his Erlikon, and each had a wary eye out for the enemy. Their vigilance was helped by the vast amount of light around them, but it wasn't sunlight. Darkness had settled on the Mediterranean. It was the fires. Abandoned ships were on fire. The oil on the water surface was on fire. The Mediterranean itself, it seemed, was on fire. The fire from the lost Clan Ferguson was, by itself, a complete mile of flame, said the engineer of the Elisa. It was then that Captain Thompson decided to turn north. Better to have the darkness to hide in versus all this light, allowing the guns on the shore to the south or the Italian e-boats to see them. But the Santa Elisa had not gone north for long before a destroyer radioed them and ordered her to turn 120 degrees to rejoin the other ships. As Lieutenant Commander Barnes, the liaison officer aboard Elisa, later explained, this was not a request. Soon the Santa Elisa was behind three other ships as they moved east, but going just south of Zebra Island at the mouth of the Gulf of Tunis to the northwest of the Cape Bond Peninsula. These ships were only 200 miles from Malta. However, the ship in front of them was partially blotted out by the derrick gear in front of the bridge on the Elisa, so, before too long, she was once again all by herself. The crew knew of the minefields out there, so stayed within four miles of the Tunisian coast. But they were moving at 16 knots, with no lights, except for the firefighting that was taking place against the ships they had just been with that were now ahead of them. Fred Larson watched this for a few moments and then realized the gunners on those other ships, probably spooked, were firing at anything that came close to looking like an e-boat. Larson settled down enough to notice that the lighthouse at Cape Bond was lighting them up three times every 12 seconds, not to mention the Calibia light about 20 miles further south. But it was also lighting them up enough for the Vichy guns on the shore to engage, if they so chose to. Then a light from the shore landed on the Elisa, stayed there for a minute, then moved on, only to be replaced by battery fire. Captain Thompson yelled to Larson, resume zigzagging. They headed north until surrounded by darkness. Now, being relatively safe, Captain Thompson met with Larson, liaison officer Barnes, and Navy armed guard ensign Gerhard Suppinger, Jr., in charge of the guns. Captain Thompson had had enough. He told Fred Larson to plot a course to Malta, but not one that would take them to the south, closer to the coast. Suppinger would write, 
This would take us out of range of coastal batteries, but would take us into what we knew to be a minefield near Pantelleria. We decided to risk the minefield. Now, Pantelleria was called the Hobgoblin by Allied sailors and merchantmen. On it were 80 large guns, a landing strip for Stukas, but most importantly to the men of the Elisa, a hidden harbor with docks that were full of e-boats. As the tale went, the e-boats hid in caves like vampire bats. And conjuring up a mental map, an almost straight line can be drawn from the tip of the Cape Bond Peninsula to Malta, going to the southeast, but closer to Tunisia. So Pantelleria was fortuitously situated for the Axis. With that decided, Larsen started plotting a course, which left Supinger to gather his crew. He wanted all guns checked, cleaned, and reloaded. This was mostly for the Erlikons, as their magazines held only 60 rounds. But as it could fire 450 rounds per minute, the magazines were stacked nearby. As for the Borfors, there were only 400 rounds left. Not as many as it sounds. With this getting underway, and it was only a matter of time before first light broke, Supinger ordered his men to keep their eyes peeled for the dreaded e-boats. And sure enough, there were e-boats out there. The night before, August 12th, 16 e-boats had left Sicily, and one of those had a camera crew on board as Mussolini wanted to show the world, and also Hitler, the power of this new Rome. Four more e-boats departed Pantelleria to join up, as did two more from Lampedusa Island, located about 70 miles or 112 kilometers southwest of Malta. Again, a convenient location for Il Duce. Additionally, there were German e-boats as well, but tonight would be mostly an Italian affair. The e-boat, on average, is about 35 meters, or 114 feet long. It can hold just over 4,000 gallons of fuel, and needs to, as it mostly runs at max speed, its main defense. But as all that fuel is heavy, the Italian e-boat itself is mostly constructed of aluminum, or wood. Again, their need for speed. The Italians painted them black, making them even harder to see at night, which was the point. If things went right, the e-boat would be the last thing the crew of a merchant ship or allied warship would ever see. These e-boats had two or three engines on them and could travel at 43.8 knots or 50 miles an hour. They usually had 20-millimeter machine guns, but their weapon of choice were four 600-pound torpedoes launched from two tubes in the bows. A crew of 24 to 30 manned these weapons along with one 37mm flak AA cannon. One of the luckier escorts so far was the light cruiser HMS Manchester. Ordered to join Pedestal, at first she was attached to the carrier Furious, but just before entering the Mediterranean on August 7th, she joined the main body somewhere near Portugal. Three days later, after refueling at Gibraltar, she was then told to join Admiral Burrow's Force X, the merchant's close escort. For the next few days, she would be in her fair share of scrapes, but again she had yet to suffer damage from below or above. 
Its commander, Captain Harold Drew, hoped this would continue. But luck can only last so long. Deeper in the Sicilian Narrows, E-boats MS-16 and MS-22 were parked behind the body of HMS Havoc, a ship that had run on a sandbar back in April near Calabia. Think near the northeastern corner of the Cape Bond Peninsula, but more on the eastern side. There sat the two Italian crews, like patrol officers behind a sign, waiting to give someone a ticket, waiting for their first catch of the day. It just happened to be the Manchester. As for the crew of the Stranded Havoc, they were interred in Tunisia by Vichy France, but would be freed during Operation Torch. Back to the story, when the Manchester was hard upon the havoc, the two E-boats fired up their engines and dashed right at the British vessel. When MS-16 was only 800 yards away from the light cruiser, she had covered the distance in no time, the first torpedo was launched. By now, MS-22 was only 600 yards away, so she let off her own torpedo. Both missed. The torpedo from MS-22 may have missed the Manchester, but it came very close to the nearby cruiser Kenya. Two close calls, one torpedo. Both e-boat captains were of the same mind. They might have missed, but they kept coming at 40 knots. As it was dark, the lookouts on the Manchester did not spot the threat until the two little ships were only 100 yards away from the cruiser's side, and that was 600 feet long. Just before getting to the 100-foot mark, the E-boats each launched another torpedo and then turned hard, as if trying to splash the cruiser before she disappeared. The torpedo stayed underwater for six seconds and then reached the Manchester. That's how close the E-boats had gotten. Point blank range. The first torpedo hit the Manchester in the aft engine room. The second torpedo hit a bit further back and consequently damaged the propellers. In the boiler room, 13 men were steamed alive. Two more would die later of their injuries, but not to be too gruesome, those 13 men did not die quickly. Well, not quickly enough that their screams were not heard by their comrades nearby. Captain Russell of the Kenya recorded, at one twelve and a half, the E-boat was located and engaged, as did some of the guns of the Manchester. But what Russell nor anyone from the Manchester could know was that both E-boats had been hit by a 4.7-inch gun. Was it the Kenya? Was it the Manchester? Honestly, it didn't matter all that much to the Italian crews. Within seconds, they had gone from elation to bleeding and burning as the fuel cells had caught fire from the incoming lead. Before the E-boats reached shore, 30 men in total were seriously injured or burned, some of them diving into the water to put out the flames on their skin. And relief came, but was replaced by salt-in-the-wounds pain. Of the Manchester's three propeller shafts, two were beyond hope, and the third had been twisted which caused the warship to begin a slow arc to starboard. Unfortunately, the freighters Amira Likes and Glenorchy were still following the Manchester as their masters thought she was leading them away from a fight. 
Finally, the warship signaled, Steer clear of us. We are out of control. To this, Captain Henderson of the Ameria Likes yelled to his men, Let's get the hell out of this. The ship was turned to port, hard. But as the other ship, Glenorchy, was hard upon, there was almost another collision. Back to the Manchester, Captain Drew had the engines shut down. At 1.54 a.m., the destroyer Pathfinder came alongside and took 172 crewmen with them from the Manchester, mostly the wounded and men who could not help with their current situation. Once that was done, the Pathfinder sped up to help protect the remaining merchant ships. And now, the story of HMS Manchester gets murky, and the complete truth may never be known. After dealing with the 11-degree list by shunting the starboard torpedoes and shifting oil, the list was reduced to 4 degrees. But that's the only clear part of the story. Captain Drew assumed, or was told, it would take a few hours to get the ship to move under her own power, and a few more hours, moving slowly, to get to deep enough water to sink her so she could not be reached by the enemy. Either way, there still could be e-boats out there, and the Manchester was a sitting duck. Captain Drew also thought of returning to Gibraltar. In fact, he had done just that a year ago, when the Manchester was damaged then. The long and short of it is, Drew decided to scuttle the ship and placed the charges. The remaining crewmen climbed into the motorboats, but they had to be rowed, as there was no petrol for them and they would make for Tunisia. This rowing would take about six hours, and for their pains, were interred by Vichy forces, spending their first night in a morgue. According to some of the men, their treatment was less than kind, and it stayed that way. The explosives went off, but Manchester was apparently loath to go. Hours went by, and only slowly did her stern lead the way in 240 feet of water. She disappeared at 6.47 a.m. that morning, August 14th. In mid-September, the Admiralty held a board of inquiry, and even this was murky. The first sea lord, Admiral Dudley Pound, looked over the board's findings and remarked that Drew lacked a determination to fight. But that's not the end of the story. Operation Torch would see those men of Manchester freed, and in late November, Captain Drew returned to London, where he was told to write up a report. Working for Drew was the tactical situation. His ship was damaged, his crew reduced, and even if the e-boats didn't finish him off, the subs or planes that were bound to arrive with first light would. Further, he was low on ammunition, and many of their weapons were out of commission. Working against him was the fact that the ship was repaired enough to move under her own power. The Admiralty would have liked to see the Manchester at least try to make for Malta, whereas Drew was hoping not to lose the majority of his crew for no discernible gain. But it was the process of the Admiralty that angered those who supported Drew. Officially, Drew was not charged with negligence, but he was found to be guilty of it. Later, Drew was told that the inquiry was now a court-martial. He would never command a vessel again. 
but being a good British officer, Drew said not a word against the Admiralty for the rest of his life. Six decades later, the Manchester was found, and the damage discovered was greater than the Board of Inquiry either believed or knew. Soon after, the transcripts of the inquiry were declassified, and they showed that Drew never had a chance. Did the Admiralty feel that they needed a scapegoat for all those losses of pedestal? Who knows? But they had one now. Next time, we'll get to see how Admiral Burroughs reacts under pressure, as his current flagship, the destroyer Ashanti, was engaging with four e-boats, two to each side all the while looking after the merchantmen that were still with him as they all tried to make the last few miles to Malta. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So many of you have responded to my plea for help, and all I can say is thank you very much. Thank you for me, and thank you for my family. It has really helped us get through this. Now, to thank you specifically. I'm not going to mention everybody this time, but I'll do some of the names now and I'll do some of the names later until I get everyone caught up. As far as those who have donated recently, let's see, there's Marcus Braun, John Natman. Yes, John, I'll keep going until this is done or I'm dead. Let's uh, see here, Denise Keller, thank you for the message. Um, Jeff Tucker from Wisconsin, thanks for the hearty donation very much. Uh, David Sadell. Yes, it helps uh, very much. Richard Lytle, thank you, Richard, very much. Mark Foldy, thank you, sir. Mark Porman, Brian Tillman, Nathan Rubel. And thanks, Nathan, for spreading the word of this podcast. Don't harass people too much, but, you know, keep spreading the word. And he also became a member. So thank you, Nathan. Um, let see here. Joe Fortunato, who has all the right words, uh, Anthony Baker, and Daniel Milliken from Texas, the gentleman I was on his show a couple of months ago. We actually recorded four shows. Uh, only the first one has been released, so I'll let you know as those keep coming out. Um, James Knapper, uh, Richard Welts, Stephen Ryan, Jose Mata, Michael Bernard, Dwight Olerick, sorry Dwight if I got that wrong, and he also became a member, so thank you Dwight. Uh, let's see, Jonathan Kiesel, thanks so much, and yet, thanks again. Eugene Papa, Jeremy James, thanks for the vote of confidence, Jeremy, I appreciate that. Gary Gunderman, Michael Richards, and Joseph Moonen. Um, again, Dwight became a member, so I'll thank the other people on the next episode, I didn't want to drag it all out. Again, it has really helped us get through some stuff, so we appreciate it, and I will see you next week. We are getting close to the end of Pedestal, and then we go back to the Eastern Front. Take care, everyone.